Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the No Bad Dogs podcast with me, Tom Davis, America's canine educator. Hey, today uh, we have a special guest, Rihanna Rice. I was actually out in Minnesota filming a, a, a fun project that hasn't been released yet. Um, but I, this is where I met Rihanna um, working with some golden retrievers and doing some artificial insemination and breeding. Um, and you just meet people that you really get along with. And, and we had a really good couple conversations um, off film. And I thought it would be great to have her on the podcast. And she was um, very gracious with her time on her day off today and talked to me about certain things that I know I had questions on and certain things I know some dog trainers and dog owners have questions on. And the two things that we touched base on was anxiety with dogs and medication and medicating animals um, when maybe not needed. And then um, the big question of spay and neutering and when to do it, why to do it, if you're going to do it or if you're not going to do it. So some really good topics of discussion in, in my opinion. And uh, again, Rihanna, thank you so much for, for hopping on and talking to me today and the No Bad Dogs audience. And this episode is brought to you by our friends over at Dogtra. And Dogtra is my go-to remote collar training. If you're not familiar with remote collar training, it's the e-collar off-leash training programs that um, make your dog, help your dog become uh, happier off-leash, and then, of course, responsibility on your end to make sure that you can control your dog with that. You can visit all the Dogtra products at www.dogtra.com. And then we have a discount code I'm going to announce on my uh, on my Instagram, actually. So if you're looking for new products in Dogtra, you can message me on Instagram and get my code for a discount that I don't have in front of me right now. But in other news, I'm also doing a two-day dog training workshop in Cleveland, Ohio. And I think, honestly, unfortunately, we're probably going to do only two to three dog training seminars this year. And I wanted to do more, but my schedule literally booked completely up the entire year um, within a couple weeks. So Cleveland Dog Training Workshop is going to be at the Boss Canine Training Facility. It's going to be May 16th and 17th. It's two days. There's working spots, which you come and you work with me for two days with your dog. And that price is $550 for the two days. And then your audit spots, which is you guys decide if you want to come to one day or two days. And the audit spots include you coming in and watching, uh, asking questions, hanging out, um, having a good time. And that is $65 a day to come and hang out and do that. Um, and again, it's, it's a lot because we're only taking a certain amount of dogs for the working spots. And I believe... As of right now, we only have three working spots left, and I'm urging people not to wait if it's something that you're interested in because the other seminar I'm doing is going to be on the West West Coast, probably in California, but that isn't completely confirmed yet. So if you're looking to work with me this year, I'd love to meet you either way. If you want to come and audit for a day or two, or if you want to come work with me and your dog, I would love that. Um, it's going to be a lot of fun. And again, that's May 16th and 17th, and you can find tickets for that at America's Canine educator.com slash calendar. Again, that's America's canine educator.com slash calendar. But without further ado, welcome Rihanna Rice to the No Bad Dogs podcast. Hello. Hey, Rihanna, it's Tom. Hi, Tom. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you. So why don't you just, why don't you, Rihanna, why don't you just introduce yourself uh, and tell people where you're from and what you do currently? 
Yeah, my name is Rihanna Rice, and I am a small animal uh, practitioner, cats and dogs exclusive, in a little town called Stillwater, Minnesota, about 20 to 30 miles east of the Twin Cities area here. Graduated from the University of Minnesota in 2012. Um, I do have an interest in canine reproduction, but like most small animal practitioners, I do a little bit of everything. Yeah. Yeah. And I, when I went out and, and visited with you, it was really cool to see what, uh, you know, as far as uh, artificial insemination and going through the breeding process, that was all really cool to see uh, how it how it works. You know, you always hear stories of not necessarily stories, but, you know, the process of it. And it, it was just cool to to see how it how it played out and and how it was done. So that was really cool. Um, so today I want to talk to you about something that we discussed when I was out there off camera and off any type of recording devices that I thought was really interesting. And I just want um, your input and further advice for people out there. And, and mainly what we like to talk about is just having a discussion to help dog owners understand different, I don't, I don't want to say policies, but different outlines of the unknown. Um, and, and one thing that we discussed was canine anxiety and how it's become the, the anxiety right now has become, you know, the anxiety medicine has become a very big thing. And for us, you know, working with dog behavior and my other trainers working with, <clears throat> excuse me, and my other trainers working with dog behavior, it's, it's become the anxiety medication and I guess problem has become very hard for us to also work with because what we see in a training atmosphere is a dog coming in with very small amounts of mostly stress and sometimes there's anxiety involved and sometimes it's just the dog wearing stress and not really knowing what to do with certain situations and then evolving into behavioral problems of course so i wanted to just pick your brain about in in your take and your practice um, advocating for when people come in with a dog that shows signs of, let's say, anxiousness. So somebody comes in and says, hey, Dr. Rice, my dog has anxiety. What's your process to go through to really to really explain to the Because the dog owner doesn't know, right? Anxiety, well, be, behavior in dogs in general is very foreign to the average dog owner, much like oh, if, absolutely. compared to if you're a human and you say, okay, I, I feel this way. You're like, well, you know, it, it's easier to explain to people how you feel your symptoms. If, if you're just going to your family practitioner doctor to say, Hey, I have a sore throat. My head feels this way. My thoughts are this way. It's a lot easier to explain things in that manner. But when we're talking about dog anxiety and we're talking about psychology, what's your, what's your approach to that? Can you just walk me through how you, assess the situation and walk the dog and the owner through that process? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and you know, I will say, so we, we get, you know, requests for different, I would say kind of sedative stress, anxiety related, um, sort of medications for a lot of different reasons. And so, you know, that conversation typically starts out, well, can you kind of describe what's going on? What sort of behavior are, are you seeing? What's, what does that look like? What sort of circumstances is it happening in? Um, what, if anything, have you tried to address it aside from medication? 
So just trying to gain a, a better understanding um, kind of of what's going on. And in my experience, when people come in inquiring about those medications, um, falls into two general categories as far as kind of what what they're looking for, what their perception of the issue is. So sometimes it's a circumstantial sort of concern, like for instance, thunderstorms or, or mm-hmm. fireworks um, are really common ones as far as, okay, the, the pet seems extremely anxious, you know, with noise stimulus, that sort of thing. And, but the other um, kind of falls under the the dog always seems keyed up or has a lot of separation anxiety. And there's a lot of times when unfortunately there's separation because of work schedules or kids schedules or whatever the case may be. So it's kind of those where it's like, okay, this is something that happens maybe a couple times a week, maybe a couple times a month, maybe not even that often versus this is more or less a, a not necessarily constant, but a more um, consistent and frequent um, sort of concern, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. And so the, the situational, environmental stimulus or environmental things such as like you said fireworks it could be seasonal it could be environmental fireworks or just just traveling or something that doesn't happen on the regular that's associated with everyday things meaning the dog is getting stressed or having anxiety for normal reasons i mean dogs not hearing fireworks for the first time and all of a sudden there's bombs going off everywhere quote unquote and the dog becoming stressed because of 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 practical warranted things versus a dog sitting in a room by themselves and then whining at the door for 25 minutes for no reason so yeah there's a significant difference between like okay this anxious behavior is warranted towards this animal because that's what normal animals would do fearing for their I think the fight or flight drive kind of kicks in and they say okay well all these bombs are going off around me I don't know what the heck it is I got to get out of here and then it creates anxiety because normally they they can't escape and as you probably know in the United States a lot of dogs are hit by cars or go missing during the 4th of July holiday usual uh, shenanigans because of the fireworks being so stressful to, to animals but um, so at what so so for us, you know, for trainers, it's 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 difficult because what we see, and I think we we had this discussion uh, in your office is what we see is dogs going in to a veterinary clinic and saying, veterinarian a clinic and saying, hey, um, my dog is anxious. What can we do? And so for for a trainer standpoint, and I'm sure that you can you can touch base on this is we see a lot of dog owners just not giving the dog proper exercise or proper structure um, dependent on the breed, uh, breed dependent structure, which means if you have a border collie versus a mastiff, there's going to be certain structures that you're going to have to do to outlet certain behaviors to eliminate stress and anxiety because from our our approach, and again, being the, the behavioral size of like training, we just see a lot of dog owners just kind of being lazy and not going out and, and actually utilizing the dog's ability to be a dog and then that will create stress and anxiety yeah i absolutely concur with that and i mean everybody i think has the best of intentions but a lot of that um sort of perception of stress or anxiety um can definitely be chalked up to maybe a misunderstanding of what that breed or what that dog actually needs as far as environmental enrichment and activity Mm -hmm. um and just brain stimulation so um, so yeah, that's, that is a huge, huge piece of it. And there's, 
you know, a lot of things that go into why somebody picks a certain breed or picks a certain dog. Um, sometimes it's nostalgia. Sometimes it's right. like a Disney movie. Sometimes it's, um, oh, we have friends that have this breed, that sort of thing. But it's, it's really important to have a good understanding of what the requirements of that breed are. And of course that can be tricky, um, especially with, uh, with rescue dogs and in, in right. the state of Minnesota, certainly, obviously, I work with a lot of breeders um, who have purpose-bred, purebred dogs, but we also have a lot of rescue dogs, shelter dogs um, being adopted in this part of the country, which is wonderful. So, some, But sometimes, you know, the breed isn't always known in right. that instance, but again, it still kind of comes down to hopefully we didn't select this particular dog because of the way it looks physically or, you know, hopefully we spent some time visiting with it before we acquired it. So we had a little bit of idea of personality and things like that. Cause a lot of it I think does come down to just the, the owner's expectation, um, not lining up with reality for that particular breed or that particular combination of breeds. Yeah. And, and I think like for you, and we had this discussion, like when we talk about when, when we talk about dog anxiety, a lot of times, like very rarely, so say we see, I don't know, uh, a thousand dogs a year. Uh, a lot of people will, will assume that their dog is, has anxiety issues because of the lack of basic, very, very basic lack of exercise and structural systems. So for us, it's very crucial for just like with humans, it is very crucial for dogs to have anxiety medicine if they actually need it. But a lot of times dogs actually don't need that anxiety medicine. And that's the, that's the problematic situation that we deal with on a regular basis on our end is we see sometimes veterinarians, um, prescribe certain dosages of, of anxiety medicine without going through the proper precautions to say, like, how much do you exercise your dog? Um, what type of structure are you doing with your dog? What type of, what type of training have you done with your dog? And so for us, it, it comes down to just dog owners kind of being lazy and not putting in the work. And so for, for, for you, comparable to the amount of dogs that come in, how many times do you actually see, and this is just out of curiosity, how many times do you actually see dogs that need that actually have true, rather it's um, neurological, born this way type of anxiety, or a dog that has been through hell and back and has created some PTSD type of behaviors with anxiety, um, you know, abuse, neglect, etc. How many times comparable to like, if somebody comes in that says their dog has anxiety versus their dog actually having anxiety? That's a good question. Um, and I'm going to be completely honest. Like I said, sometimes my, my answers here are probably going to be a little bit frustrating, but I'm not always entirely sure. Right. No, um, that's because fine. Because I never judge um, a dog's personality or behavior in general based on how it's behaving in the clinic because it's not a normal environment right. um, for that animal. Even if it's a well check, they're usually getting poked or prodded to some degree. So there's a lot of stress associated with that. So it's hard. Like I'm relying on what the owner is telling me, right. um, which is, um, you know, they're doing, <laughs> describing that to the best of their ability, but it's, it's maybe not always the most objective thing because it's their perception of what's going on. Um, what I can speak more to is, you know, where I'm a little bit more, um, leaning towards, okay, yeah, this is probably legitimately something this dog went through, um, because, because of its previous life. Although I will say that like with a rescue situation, again, we have a lot of people that go that route in this area, which is great. 
But I think a lot of the times um, there are assumptions made about the way that dog is behaving. We don't know for a fact that the dog was exposed to a certain trauma um, or a certain situation that's causing it to behave a certain way. And so as much as I do want to give every dog the benefit of the doubt, I think another thing that we all need to be careful about is sort of rationalizing what is a, a dog is doing based on an assumption that may or may not be correct instead of trying to address that behavior in a more useful and productive way, like through a trainer, if that makes sense. No, it does. And I, and I also think like on our end, as far as the training aspect goes, we see a lot of people, a lot of dog owners basing their decisions based off their emotions. So I I can tell you that a lot of times when people bring me the rescue dog, some of the worst cases of stress and anxiety, fear, aggression, fear in general, or legit aggression has been cases of dogs being adopted out, um, from a rescue, either a shelter or even them just finding them on the streets, what have you. And the worst cases of psychological problematic, uh, I don't want to say disorders, but sometimes disorders or just problems has been with dogs that have been, again, adopted by somebody and they, they are coddled and they are dealt with a certain way because of their emotions kind of feed into that. So human emotion is, is much, much, much different from animal, not just canines, but just animal emotions in general. And I try to explain to people on a regular basis that just because they had a rough start doesn't mean that they can never have structure or discipline throughout the rest of their life because I have found that with canines specifically, when they lack structure from, you know, potentially mom, if they were taken away too early or just their, their siblings in general and understanding pack structure and then being abandoned, neglected, or abused for months to years, a lot of times all that dog actually needs is structure. Immediately. And I think going back to what you were saying with dog owners is we, we tend to reflect our, and I'm guilty of it as well, because we just have a different emotional attachment to dogs than we do with people because we don't understand them as good, I think. And I think just sometimes the emotion that we have for our dogs gets in the way of reality. Oh, I absolutely agree with that. And I, I've been guilty of that myself. Right. It's, it's hard. Um, it's hard to be with a lot of things, even, you know, medical, serious medical illnesses and things like that. It's it's hard to be objective and have it be black and white when you're so when you're so close to that animal and mm-hmm. it's relying on you for um, its health and its livelihood and its happiness and everything. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's and that's a case that we see a lot. And so. So anyway, so going back to the original, uh, the idea of, um, you know, the veterinarian, um association with the anxiety and then leading back to us because what like I said like what we find a lot of is dogs being just dosed and dosed and dosed with anxiety medicine because the owners are coming in with saying like hey I have this dog the underlying issues are leading up to anxiety but um but again we're not doing everything that we need to do so in your opinion like What's your, I mean, can you really diagnose anxiety for sure with a dog? Like, is there any test you can do as a veterinarian to say like, okay, this is anxiety or is it like you said before, you're kind of just getting the information from the dog owner and making the diagnosis as best as you can? 
Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it's, you know, we always as medical professionals always try to look for, first of all, is there a medical cause for this? Is there some right. sort of neurologic issue? Um, and so you can do a neurologic exam and kind of, you know, it's it's different if that animal has a history of like nystagmus or something like that, which is when the eyes involuntarily move, or if they're ataxic, in other words, walking like they're drunk, mm. um, then you're a little bit more suspicious that we've got a central nervous system issue. So um, although I will say that is a very small percentage um, of people that come in where I'm suspicious of something of that nature. Um, to kind of cross all your proverbial T's and dot your your eyes, um, you can always chase down a thyroid condition as a potential source. I mean, that's one thing that's been mm-hmm. reported as a symptom of hypothyroidism as dogs is behavioral changes, more specifically aggression. Um, but it's it's also one of those things that you're like, okay, well, you know, if if physically the dog doesn't look like a thyroid dog, I'm, I'm a lot less suspicious of that, but to be thorough, you can always run a thyroid panel and kind of rule that out. Um, so that's kind of what we're looking for from a medical perspective, but because, um, you know, a veterinary clinic isn't exactly a representative of how that animal is all the time. We're like a lot of things, even when the, you know, a dog comes in for lethargic, not eating that sort of thing, you're, mm-hmm. you're really relying on the owner and what they're reporting because you can't, I mean, you can ask the dog, but you're kind of wasting your time right. obviously by doing that. Yeah. So it's, it's difficult. It's really, that's, that's one of the things that, that makes working with animals in any capacity uh, a little more challenging. Yeah. And that's what we, we try to do is like when we get a dog in, working with, with behavioral cases and we see a huge change in behavior and we see very, very out of character behavioral changes. We, we won't even accept them as a client until they've gotten a clear from their veterinarian, veterinarian, um, because that does play a role. I mean, we've even seen dogs having tooth issues all of a sudden creating what looks like resource guarding because they're trying to eat and then they become growly and grumpy because they have a cracked canine or whatever. So we've, we, that's something that we play close attention to. But again, like our side of, of the training aspect, we just see so many, so many times where I think, um, and this is something that you can shed light on possibly that I think there are a lot of veterinarian clinics across the country that are also, they don't have a lot of time to really, like you said, you bring a dog in that is showing signs of, of, of anxiety. And this may be um, habitual barking at the door, windows, um, whining, um, spinning, um, so on and so forth. And then they go to a trainer. And then we, what, what we try to do is really figure out what they're doing. And I can tell you through hundreds of video documentation, not only in my facility, but also the video documentation being posted online to try to help people. I can tell you that, that the amount of anxiety that dogs have from just not having that structure is huge. But at the same time, it is hard for any dog to enter a facility such as your environment as well and, and really have a clinical study to say like, okay, this is a neutral zone. This is an area that's sterile, if you will. And, but, but when actuality, like you said, if the dog goes into a, a veterinarian clinic and has been poked and prod and, and stuck with something before they're going to sign, they're going to, you're going to see as, as the, the caretaker of that dog, you're going to see much more anxiety than normal because they're already in a state of maybe like, okay, what's, what's going to happen today at this place that I see once a year. So I think, I think you, you, you guys also run into, to a hard decision making thing because dogs probably are out of character when they come see you anyway. 
Yeah, absolutely they are. Because they're they're in an environment that doesn't necessarily bring them lots of good things. It's usually, you know, just like us, when we go to the hospital, we kind of get uneasy feelings because the chances of you going to a hospital just because you feel good are, are not likely. But um, so usually that has that has an effect. But anyway, uh, going back to the comparison. So um, walk me through the the process again, like, like what we talked about before, like what are some of the questions if somebody out there is dealing with what they think is dog anxiety, what are some of the things in your opinion that is, is actual anxiety? And from our end, just to give you like an example, we, we consider anxiety, a dog, like causing harm to themselves if they're crated, like trying to bust out of the crate um, chewing on their paws, um, maybe running against the glass, trying to get out, barking at other dogs. Is there anything that you can add um, that actually would classify? Do you you say immediately like, okay, this dog has has true anxiety? Yeah, I think you kind of you you touched on it for the most part. I mean, if there's some sort of self harm going on, um, harm towards others in the household, whether that's a guest of the household or wherever it is that they are, if they're out on a walk and. Mm-hmm. Somebody gets injured by this animal. Um, destruction of things within the house, especially if that's a new behavior, yeah. um, like destroying a kennel, destroying a doorknob, destroying a door, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that kind of raises your suspicion level that this is a, a legitimate anxiety issue. Yeah. And then at that point, like for us, when we start seeing that type of stuff, like we have a couple dogs that have come in that are prescribed trazodone. And I think there's one other one. We've even had dogs coming in taking Benadryl twice a day with Trazodone, which is, which I think is way too much. But, um, and then what we try to do is, it's interesting because we basically are doing case studies on behavior and we're documenting the entire thing through notes and um, um, we're writing all this down basically and keeping a, a diary of it. And what we find is... When a dog comes in and the owner says, hey, my dog has severe anxiety. Well, what's, what does that anxiety look like? And this is usually how it goes. It's like, well, they whine a lot. They pace a lot. Um, they can be disruptive. Um, they can chew on things, so on and so forth. When they go outside, they're, they're crazy. And, and a lot of times, like I said, is once we get a dog in, within three to four days of maybe four or five structured training sessions. And and by training, it doesn't necessarily mean always trying to teach the dog a new behavior. It could simply be uh, teaching a dog to maybe not jump out of the crate when you open the door or teaching the dog to not completely just barge out of the door without you. I mean, some of that stuff is just working on threshold stuff and really just creating structure to the dog and to boundaries, s- probably. Like, yeah, boundaries exactly, and and we found over, like I said, hundreds of case studies per year dealing with specific like anxiety, usually anxiety and then fear. They're very close, like cousins, from what we see. the The lack of structure really, really creates that fear and then anxiety. So, exactly like what you just said, creating the boundaries and creating structure just to give the dog a job has significantly you know, say they came in and they were barking in their kennel all day, and then after day three or four, after structure and, and uh, exposure, they don't do any of that anymore. And so that's really cool for us to see. But um, but anyway, so let's move on from 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 that and and talk a little bit about like what are what are some of what are some of things that you see like within your field 
if you can touch base on anything about like your field and how sometimes things can be chaotic. You know, people are coming in, you have a schedule, you have a curriculum to follow and dog owners not wanting, how do you handle dog owners not wanting to put in the time for training and wanting just a quick fix, kind of like with people where they're like, they want to come in and say, Hey, just give me something to take away the, the, basically just make me feel better, you know, with some sort of medicine, although they don't want to handle situations internally. How do you handle those situations with dog owners when they just don't want to train? They don't want to work on behavior. They don't want to spend the time exercising and going on walks. How do you handle that? And does that even happen? Oh yeah, no, it definitely, it definitely happens. And I think sometimes it is um, kind of what you're saying as far as an unwillingness to to spend the time. And yeah. sometimes I think it's just quite frankly, lack of information, a little bit of ignorance as far mm. as the benefit of something like that. Like people don't necessarily realize that that's a, a very reasonable solution. Um, but I mean, I guess as a practitioner and everybody's a little bit different in this regard, but I think sure. that in general, there tends to be this, a lot of people have the, the customers always write that sort of mentality. Yeah. And, and as much as you don't, I mean, you definitely want to try to balance that. But for me personally, it's, it ultimately it's up to me as to what I do with my license. And so I don't yeah. have to dispense medication to somebody. And so, you know, when, when I've been in situations, which hasn't been very frequent, but when somebody is really pushing for something that I don't think is a good solution or that I'm not comfortable with, I always reserve the right and have reserved the right to say that I'm, we're not going to go this route with it. This is not the appropriate solution mm. for this situation. And that person might go down the street and get told something else by somebody else. But that's kind of how I sleep at night and feel that I'm yeah. being responsible about the medicine that I'm practicing is, is you don't have to have to concede to, to that request. And I think sometimes um, by not doing that, even though, like I said, they, they might go down the street to a different clinic and, and get a different answer. Um, at least you're, you're kind of forcing them to yeah. think about it a little bit more and pursue another alternative. Um, because you know, the, the request wasn't as simple as it seemed, if that makes sense. So, yeah, for sure. and another part of it too, I mean, I always tell people I'm I, like everybody too, I think has a little bit different demeanor, um, as far as bedside manner and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so like, I am, very blunt with people and very straightforward with people. And I always tell people a really, really important part of my job is managing expectations. I have a very big responsibility to do that, whether that's with respect to a serious medical condition that we need to speak realistically about, whether it's a behavioral issue, whatever it is. And so a lot of times, um, you know, when we're having these conversations and people are pushing for, for medication, I don't think that's the solution. I mean, mm -hmm. I will straight up tell people, I don't really even expect this to, to be effective. Like, I think we need to talk about what we can yeah. do to get this behavior to stop. And I don't think a pill is the mm -hmm. solution. I don't think that you're going to get what you expect to get out of that, if that makes sense. No, totally. And that's, that's kind of like that. That was the question I was, I was uh, asking is yeah, exactly. Like when people do come in and they say, Hey, I just want this, I want this medicine because my dog is barking too much. Cause, cause that's the thing is like, you know, dealing with as many people as we do because we're very spread out. We're not, I mean, we're local, but we have clients that are very, um, a macro level from all over. Um, so, so it's great for us because we collect so much data and we've seen dogs come in with excitement. I mean, one-year-old dogs with say a golden retriever with excitement 
get trazodone or get something to decompress certain behaviors. And, and for us, it's just extremely scary. And then I know you can't talk about everyone else in the country or in the world that's doing stuff, but it, it is nice to just hear um, somebody's opinion that's in the field on, on the veterinarian side to see, you know, what, what is your process? And it's nice to hear that you, you do have some sort of regimen to say like, look, I know what you want and I want to make you happy because you are a, a patient or a client. Um, however, there's other alternatives than this. And, and that's what we as dog trainers or, um, people who work in dog behavior or even in daycare that we see a lot of is, I think one of the other things that, that I try to explain to people too, is there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of behavioral stuff that goes on that a lot of, um, veterinarians don't have a lot of, um, practice in they don't have a lot of information on because it's not taught like we did it we did a a mass search engine for like a week trying to figure out what colleges offer canine behavioral training and assessments and so on and so forth and a lot of it is very minimal if even offered at all and I don't have it right in front of me but there are some colleges that require like a 10 to 20 hour course but do, can you shed any light on that in your experience, um, you know, going through school? Um, mm-hmm. Was there any was there any process that you that you were mandated to take and or that you took um, that really structured and focused on canine behavior and how to address certain situations? Um, yeah. So I had already mentioned I went to the University of Minnesota and um, I've worked with enough practitioners from from different vet schools throughout the country to know that it, it's not the same I mean obviously the goal is to get you to be able to pass boards and practice good medicine mm-hmm. um, but there is a lot of variation in those programs and so I feel like at least when I went to school um, that the University of Minnesota offered probably a little bit more in that regard than other schools did at that time um, there was a behaviorist that I can't remember to be honest with you if he was actually employed by the University of Minnesota, but I, I know he did his internship there and he might have done his residency there as well. He's a veterinarian that's board certified in behavior. And so we had this thing that was called behavior core. Mm-hmm. And if I'm remembering this correctly, and I believe this was like in 2010, so I'm doing my best here. Yeah, that's fine. Um, we had something like, it was like one week, but that is all we did. And so it was probably somewhere on the order of 30 to 40 hours mm-hmm. um, that was that was dedicated strictly to behavior. And I don't honestly know if they still offer that because the person, even though I can't remember his exact association with the school at the time, the person who, who provided that um, moved out of this state is on the West Coast now. So mm. I don't know that they, that they do that anymore. Yeah. And that's just... And, and to me, like, again, like as trainers, uh, educational people, whatever you want to call, I don't call myself a necessarily trainer. I just have a passion and, uh, you know, a very wide experience working with dogs professionally. But, um, my other trainers that work in my facility have four year bachelor degrees in animal science with a, with a very, very defined, um, curriculum in canine. Um, so they're, they're, you know, they went to school, they went to college for it and agricultural stuff. And, um, so for us, it, it is a little, you know, it's hard for us because we try to explain to um, our clients that, and uh, and we'll talk about, th- this kind of rolls into our next subject of, you know, the whole big spay and neuter um, discussion. But a lot of times with the behavior, there's certain, I mean, it, so it's very likely 
that, uh, and, and from the research we've done, it's very likely that a lot of veterinarians don't have any real hands-on behavioral training before they start their practices. Is that... I would say that's very true. And I even will disclose to clients when we're having these conversations and I'm recommending um, a trainer, I will be very open, even though I feel like we probably had more than a lot do. I, I straight up tell them we have very limited exposure to this sort of thing in veterinary school. Unfortunately, there's just too many other things right. um, to cover and only so much time. So um, even though obviously they come to us for advice on that stuff, as far as like the behavior modifications and how to exactly approach that, I am not the authority on that. Right. I'm, very um, transparent about that. Yeah. And that's good. And that's really like the discussion that we try to have with our clients too, because, you know, we always tell people like the veterinarians, like if you have a, it's science and medicine. I mean, if you have a problem physically, um, any type of, any type of actual problems with your dog that's internal, um, that doesn't have anything to do with behavioral, you're not going to get, you can't go to your trainer for that. I mean, that's why, you guys are there and, and that's what you guys do. And that's that, how, how long were you in school from in college from start to finish? Yeah. Well, I went about it in a little bit roundabout way because I majored in business and I went back to school for this. So, mm. um, I had a, a couple extra years taking those science prerequisites, but the typical path is a four year bachelor degree, usually science based. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, four years of vet school. Right. So eight years, accumulative ish. Yep. Yeah. And I tell people, I said, look, they've, they've spent that much time. And then if you specialize, then you take some more years and so on and so forth. And I tell people all the time that they spend eight years on, making sure your dog stays alive with, with all of the other diseases and, and things that can happen with your dog. But we just find a lot of times that there's certain uh, clinics that will disregard very, like we, we talked about at the beginning of this podcast, that will disregard very, very, very easy stuff to say like, hey, you have a six months old boxer and it's driving you crazy because it's a six month old boxer and doesn't necessarily have anxiety. It's a dog that needs to go out and outlet stuff. And so, so anyway, so we struggle and we really, 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 really applaud. And we work closely with, with certain local veterinarian uh, clinics um, that we have a great relationship with that we say like, they, they say exactly what you just said. And we do the same thing that if one of our dogs is sick or hurt or God forbid, um, you know, in daycare bash into another dog or whatever, we're, I mean, we're all certified for CPR and first aid, but we, we're not going to sit around and, and diagnose anything and act like we, we don't know. I mean, we're just, so we send them to the vet and then vice versa. If there's a behavioral issue or something that the, the veterinarian isn't comfortable with, uh, as far as behavior goes, or they're they're puzzled, or they they do exactly what you said and said, hey, you know, this is kind of out of what I do. I would recommend going to work with somebody who specializes in behavior and has a lot of experience with that, because with animals, I think it's it's crucial with animals to just know that experience is very 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 key because it's hard to look through a book and say like okay the dog is raising his lip and his eye at the same time what how do I approach this certain situation and I'm sure you've seen that in the clinic too where there's just certain dogs you're like a little uneasy with because they're they're not they're not in character to like what you would normally see I guess 
Oh, absolutely. So, okay. So, so is there anything else as far as anxiety goes before we, we switch to talking about something a little bit different? Is there anything else as far as anxiety goes that you, maybe you can touch base on to help represent a good, uh, representation of you, you as a, as a veterinarian working with, with, with canines and felines or dogs and cats, domesticated dogs and cats. Um, am I right by saying that you don't go out with anything other than that, right? Like no correct exotics. Okay. Um, is no. there anything else that you would recommend in your experience because you have so much, uh, working with dog owners and their dogs in certain situations like this, is there anything else that you would recommend people to really just try to focus on when we're talking about real anxiety or even anxiety that people think it is? You know, I don't, I think we've kind of already touched on it, although I think one thing that's worth mentioning, um, too, when, when people are seeking a, a kind of medical solution for that is that, um, you know, medications are a little bit trickier to, um, kind of prove efficacy mm-hmm. in an animal. Um, because again, we're, you know, you can't really get their feedback and right. we actually have pretty objective ways of, of measuring things that you wouldn't necessarily think for instance, efficacy of pain medication. They can do force plate studies, meaning a dog that's known to be lame on a particular leg. They put it on a force plate. They, with different medications, see, which one they're they're bearing the most weight on that plate, that sort of thing. Anxiety medications, that is really difficult. It is really hard for that to be completely objective mm-hmm. as far as the sort of response that you're getting. So even, you know, if we're in a situation where I'm open um, to at least trying something like that, people have to keep in mind that um, it's really tough to determine efficacy and, um, you know, as compared to people and, and, you know, with people, there's probably, I don't know, maybe hundreds of medications that right. fit that description. And in, in, um, animals, we have a, a, a small handful and there's a lot we don't know about that. So we think yeah. that we're always best to, um, not even consider that unless it's like a, a last resort, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it totally does. And I think, like you said earlier, I think something to also consider, uh, which is huge, is the, the lack of communication that we have comparable from humans to, to dogs. Meaning if a human comes in and says, hey, you know, I've, I've had a really rough year. Uh, I'm feeling a certain way. I'd really like some sort of assistance to try to get on a better path. Or I'm not really, uh, my, my life isn't, isn't, my life isn't fulfilled and whatever, who, who knows, you know, I'm not going to get too deep into like the psychiatrics of human behavior, but <laughs> the, the communication is huge because if you say, okay, well, let's try this medication, see how it works. Um, and then they come in and they say, you know what, this has been great. I've been doing this. I've been, you, you can get that feedback. And with dogs, it's really hard to tell because we don't really know. Um, the owner's kind of like, yeah, he's kind of knocked out all day, um, which is nice, but is it actually fixing the core of potentially even stress versus anxiety? And and maybe they're wearing their stress through anxiety. And so I think that that's a good point to make sure that it's, it is very hard for somebody like yourself to say, is this working? Is this not? Are we kind of putting a bandaid on this and not really fixing the core of the problem and helping the dog or does it actually help the dog not hurt themselves and be less anxious and things like that? Um, one other thing, uh, Rianne, I wanted to ask you about the anxiety portion. And I know that you don't have a lot of uh, information about this yet. Um, and I've talked to some other uh, veterinarians about this uh, as well. But um, what about like the CBD craze that's been going on over the last couple of years? Do you have any feedback or... Um, 
information or tests that you've done with CBD dealing with dog anxiety or stress? That is a really good question. And I, I wish that we had more information on that. Mm -hmm. I get that question all of the time. (laughs) Sure. So do I. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not, I mean, it can be anything. It can be arthritis. It can be anxiety issues. I mean, you name it. Mm -hmm. Um, people will ask about CBD. Um, and, and what I always tell people as far as that is that as a, as a medical professional, in order for me to speak on something like that, I need to have learned about it Mm -hmm. in a peer reviewed medical Mm -hmm. journal like it the source of information is important it needs to be a well-designed study that sort of thing and unfortunately we just don't have that right now i think with the prevalence of those products on the market we we might um sooner rather than later but i mean right now all i'm able to tell people is i mean it's i don't think it's not safe but we don't know for certain um as far as efficacy i really don't know um, anecdotally, and I'll tell people this anecdotally, I've had clients tell me that they used it for this, this, and this, and they thought it made a difference, but I, you know, have a responsibility mm-hmm. to, to provide fact-based information. And I just can't do that right now with yeah. those products. Yeah. And that's the conversation I've had with, with other people in the field is there's just not enough information to know how long-term the effects are good or bad. And, and I understand that. Um, but yeah, so I want to switch gears a little bit. Uh, and the other topic that I wanted to, to discuss with you was something that you and I discussed as well. Um, when we were there and we were going over, when we were filming some stuff, we were going over, um, breeding protocols and then also the, the information about, cause just dog owners get so confused. One of the things that we get a lot as, as people who work with dogs professionally, uh, especially within our daycare, especially within our training program of change in behavior and, and whatever is fixing your dog um, at an age. So could you just touch base on the, the, your opinion on rather to do or to not to do and the effects, uh, the pros and cons of all of that and just kind of give me a breakdown in your professional opinion on fixing your dog at what age, why, when, and where? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's and it's a great question, and it's one that I'm getting um, a lot more than I used to. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's more and more research being done on that. So um, I guess well, I, I'll start with providing some information. And if I'm getting too like, okay, that's too detailed. This is boring. no details. Go is a good. different tack. No details. Um, good. <laughs> but yeah, so basically, at least the research that's been done thus far. Um, on what they've looked at is kind of spaying and neutering at a young age versus doing it much older or not doing it at all. Um, there's a couple of breeds that have been studied and mm-hmm. the, the, the pros and the cons seem to be kind of breed specific. So for example, Rottweilers, obviously a large breed dog, they're very prone to bone cancer, or osteosarcoma is the $10 term to that. And what they have found is that um, Rottweilers that are left intact either forever or are spayed neutered much later in life. I mean, like in, I would say above like five, six years of age, mm-hmm. um, it seemed to be far less prone to bone cancer. Now, somebody also took a look at Vislas and the issues that they looked at with that, um, mast cell tumors, which is a type of essentially skin cancer that dogs get. Mm-hmm. And then um, kind of to circle back to our previous discussion, anxiety disorders. Um, what they found is that, 
in vislas, the opposite was true. If these animals are spayed and neutered at a young age, they seem to be far less prone to these things. So hmm. golden retrievers, there is currently a lifetime study, if you're not familiar with it. Have you heard of the Morris Foundation? No. Nope. Okay, Morris Foundation, I believe they're out of Colorado. Um, they are doing an excellent study right now. It's a lifetime study for golden retrievers. It started in 2012. They have, some, they have over 3,000 dogs enrolled in this, which is a huge sample size. Hmm. Um, so we're going to get some good information out of that. So what we have right now is preliminary because uh, it's not complete yet. But basically with them, it was kind of pick your poison. They're more likely to get hemangiosarcoma if they're spayed and neutered. At a young age, they're more likely to get lymphoma um, if they're not. So, I mean, as far as definitively saying health-wise, we just don't know at this point in time across all breeds, um, you know, what what the answer is. So what I always tell people, for female dogs in general, we have a little bit more information. So the big concerns with female dogs um, health-wise, if they're intact, in other words, not spayed, so every heat cycle that they go through makes them a little bit more susceptible to um, mammary adenocarcinoma, in other words, breast cancer. So mm-hmm. the risk with one heat cycle is pretty low. It's like 8%, but it's still there. Um, and it goes up from there. I think they've only looked at like two and three heat cycles. Two is like 20%, three is like 33% or something. And I don't think anyone's looked at it beyond that. So you do have that risk. Um, the other thing that we worry about is a uterine infection. And that doesn't have anything to do with breeding necessarily. It does seem to have a hormonal component. There is a, a kind of more typical time frame for dogs to, to kind of have that issue. It tends to be two to three weeks after a heat cycle. So obviously, if you don't have a uterus or the ovaries that are producing the progesterone that mm-hmm. predispose to uterine infection, then you can't get that. So, um, and that's something, of course, that's age correlated. I mean, the older the dog is, they're more likely to get that. But I've seen it in young animals. Um Statistically, a dog that's never had puppies is a little bit more likely to get one. I don't know that we know why that's the case. But um, so those are the considerations for a female dog. I do have an increasing number of people that want the dog to go through um, a first heat cycle. Mm -hmm. And I don't have an issue with that as long as they kind of know what they're getting themselves into as far as that's concerned. I think there's a lot of confusion as to what exactly is going on hormonally and from a fertile perspective during that time frame. Do you want me to touch on that at all? Well, I just, yeah, maybe just clarify to people, um, and myself included. So when you're talking about the first heat cycle, what's the, what's the average, uh, time span between cycle one and cycle two, or is it even possible to create that time span or is it breed specific? That's a good question. It's a very frustrating answer. It depends. Um, there's a lot of variation. I would say most dogs are going to go through their first heat cycle somewhere between 10 and 14 months of age. Um, but if a client asks me that question, I do tell them what I just told you. But I also tell them if you have the breeder's contact information, um, sometimes, not always, but sometimes it tends to kind of follow the maternal line. So you can give them a call and see if they remember when mom went in the first time. Mm. That might be your best indication um, of when she will. And so I would say on average, um, dogs go in then every six months, but I've worked with dogs that go in every four. I've worked with dogs that go in once a year, once every 18 months. So there, there's a lot of variety, but I would say just on average, like six ish months. Okay. So every, every ish, six ish months, uh, once yep. your dog has had the first heat cycle and then, yep. okay. Okay. No, that make that makes sense. Uh, and then were you going to touch base on the male, um, fixing to you went through the female? Or are you going to touch base on the males too? 
Oh yeah, absolutely. I just didn't know if you wanted me to get into at any point, like what people can expect or what they need to be careful about if they do elect to have their dog go through a heat cycle. Yeah, I do. I do. I, I would, I would like people because that's, that's a question we get and they don't realize it. And, and to, for everyone out there that's listening also, um, we get questions all the time is like, Oh, if we go through the first heat cycle and you can get, you can get into it a little bit more. But when we talk about like behavioral and change in behavior, um, just not necessarily keeping them intact, but when they're actually in the heat cycle, it, it's a real thing. I mean, animals become animals and, uh, certain drives start coming out in different dogs that you never would see, um, other than, when an animal is in heat so the very the very animal kingdom-esque behavior start happening dogs start changing i can tell you for sure my i have a um, dutch shepherd uh, which is a little bit smaller than a german shepherd um short-haired normally um about 50 60 pounds and then i also have a male saint bernard now my male saint bernard is intact he's 10 years old the reason why he's intact is because we were going to breed him at two we never did it i got nervous about fixing him at it, but we'll go back to that later um so when she went into her first heat cycle you want to talk about holy crap my saint bernard just about went through walls to get to her i mean he wouldn't eat for days he would whine you want to talk about you want to talk about stress and anxiety <laughs> i mean here's a dog that is is feeling a certain way that is very primalistic and innate to say i must mate and as dog owners who aren't familiar with canine behavior, um, that becomes kind of scary or, or irresponsible to say like, huh, I wonder what's happening. <laughs> and then all of a sudden you have puppies and, and or, you know, uh, certain injuries and fights because of the, the process. So, um, so I think, I think a, a middle lane of what you just discussed is, yes, I do want you to discuss what happens during the first heat cycle going into the second or just after the first heat cycle. But I can tell you from experience when dog owners say, well, we're thinking about waiting after the first heat cycle, but we're not sure. I always try to let them explain like you better be prepared because things do change and you don't realize it, but things do change, especially if it's a multi-dog household. So yeah, if you want to dig in a little bit more about expectations um, with the first he said, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, what I what I never honestly it sounds stupid, but what I didn't realize initially that I probably need to explain to people not to get like all in depth about people here, but a lot of people think it's the same thing as when a woman mm -hmm. is having a period. It is not the same thing. Dogs are fertile during that time frame. And um, also it is not just four to five days. It's like two to three weeks. And so that's something that a lot of people aren't aware of. And so like you said, with the behavioral change, you have to be really careful, especially like you said, with a multi-dog household, you have mm -hmm. to be really careful too um, about letting your female out unattended outside because mm -hmm. dogs have a very good sense of smell. You could have somebody who lives a mile away, have an intact male roll up into your yard. Oh yeah, and, uh, bust through the gate. Yeah, and actually, depending on where people live, the other thing that you kind of need to watch out for are coyotes can smell that as well and yeah. will end up in your yard if you're not careful. So I just always forewarn people, um, you need to be a lot more vigilant during mm. that time frame because they don't necessarily realize that. Yeah, especially in your environmentals. And people listen to this podcast all over the world, Australia, India, Africa. Um, so it's 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 not only just uh, coyotes, but it's wolves. It's it's other uh, potential canines or maybe even, I don't know how far the, that animal kingdom stretches as far as animals going into heat. But yeah, it's a, it's a thing. And, and just a little fact, I used to be 
an animal control officer, so I used to do a lot of research on uh, HBCs, which are hit by cars. I think nine, the statistics uh, a couple years ago was like 98% of HBCs hit by cars were intact males, for example. I wonder if that's where you were going yeah. with that. Yeah, 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 oh. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because people don't realize that when you have an intact male, even if it's your, you're like, oh, we don't have another dog, but my neighbor does. I mean, you, you have to... You have to be a little bit responsible to say, hey, um, you know, I'm a breeder or we're going to we're going to go to the first whatever. And, you know, I'm looking at my fence right now that's right next to my neighbor's house. And if my because then you be then you get fights. And even if you don't have multiple dogs in your household, that can create an intact male in the other household to have multiple fights with that pack because it creates such stress. And like I said, I've never seen my dog who I've had five years or no, six years before I even had a female, I've never seen him act the way he was acting during this time. And it gets pretty intense, but I'd like to hear your perspective on going into a little bit more about what dog owners can expect with the, with the body of the dog and expectations of, of maybe just waiting if they're going to wait for that first heat cycle. And what's your opinion? And I know you and I worked with specific breeds um, for certain behaviors, like you said. And I don't, I don't know if people caught on to what you were saying in the beginning about you living in Minnesota, so you work with a lot of purebred dogs. When we talk about purebred dogs, uh, it, it means usually, like you said, they're 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 work dependent and they are bred for a certain thing. So out west in the United States. Uh, well, really anywhere in the United States, even here in New York, we have breeds that are um, in certain trials and in certain clubs to do certain things and to hunt and to help, uh, you know, even guardianship uh, certain farms and things like that. So um, I know that you work with breed specific um, breeding protocols and, and standards and stuff like that. But if you want to dive a little bit more into what you can expect if you're going to wait for that first heat cycle. Yeah, I think, um, you know, definitely every female is a little bit different as far as how she's going to be. Um, I've heard it kind of across the board from pretty much the the breeding clients that I work with. And um, so just be aware. I mean, some of the things that people have reported to me is my dogs is extremely clingy. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of people, though, um, are like kind of she seems like she's a little bit more um, like human oriented in like, in not a bad way or anything like that, but just different. But I've also had it go the other way where, um, hopefully this is a, an appropriate terminology. It is professional jargon for me, but like the, you know, the technical term for that is that it's a bitch that is <laughs> intact yeah. yep. and where they'll say she literally is a bitch when yeah. she's in heat it and came from somewhere. <laughs> yep, exactly. And so sometimes, you know, they have to be really careful, um, with other dogs in the house and even including males. I mean, sometimes they don't want males near them. Sometimes they don't want people near them. Sometimes they don't want females near them. It's, you, you, you're not going to necessarily be dealing with the same dog. And the, the mm-hmm. challenge with that is you're not going to know that until the time comes. And so kind of just for people to be aware of that. And I always tell people too, I mean, even if they feel like that's, you know, going through a heat cycle, if they feel that that's the right thing to do and, and, and there's no right or wrong answer mm-hmm. as far as that's concerned. But even if they feel that that's the right thing to do for that animal's health, I always tell people, you know, this is what to expect. And if you're not up for that, that does not make you irresponsible. Spay her before it happens. If, if this is stuff that you don't want to deal with, um, then spaying her prior to that, that is also very a responsible thing to do. That is okay. Yeah. And I, and I think, 
I think the the big question here's here's the thing. Even myself, because I'm like looking left, I'm looking right, I'm bouncing back and forth. I'm like, okay, what what is the real deal here? So, if if you were to get, let's just talk about male and female in general. If you were to get your dog fixed at say six to eight weeks, here's my here's the information. Six to eight weeks? Or no 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 six to eight months. I'm sorry. Okay, I was like, okay, because that's a totally different scenario than. The no no no, months. I'm talking about six six to eight months. So before the heat. So let's just talk. Yep. Why don't you? Can you give me a little bit of information about the structural development and maturity of a, a dog, a canine in general, male or female? And getting them fixed. Well, actually, going back to six or eight weeks, there there are cases and there are certain shelters and rescue groups that will fix a dog really, really, really early. Um, yes. So the development of the dog, what is the ideal thing to do for a male or female dog to, to create? Because here's the thing. is The conversation is, is if you fix your dog too early, they don't get to develop and you're missing out on certain things. And then, and then the other uh, left, left or right side, to, who cares, um, is, well, uh, yeah, if you fix them too early, you're not going to get certain things. But if you wait, then they can develop cancers and behaviors and stuff like that. So what, what would be your ideal? Because I know that you do a lot of breeding and you're associated with development in, in certain dogs and breeds. What's the ideal course of action for people? In yeah, your and I th- it's it's another it's another um, frustrating answer. It depends. It depends on on kind of what um, that person's expectations are, whether or not they kind of want to go through the the heat cycle, or potentially be dealing with some behavioral things with the male that may or may not revert once they are neutered. And we can kind of get into that when we talk about neuter. Mm-hmm. But um, but I, I think it's a lot of people seem to think that th- there is something with joint development that's affected by spay neuter that actually has been disproven so that is not the case um there is some evidence in some breeds to suggest that dogs that are spayed and neutered at a young age are more likely to have a cruciate or acl um cruciate ligament tear which is very common orthopedic injury right. especially in large breed dogs and that's like um, a- so that is there but just so people know as far as the um there, there seemed to be some information out there at one point that somehow the growth plates were affected by this. Um, at least if it's, if, if we're talking six to eight months of age, that is not correct. Just so people are aware of that. Of the growth plates being fully developed. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And that it affecting that, that, that is not a concern. Okay. So if you, if you fix your dog less than a year, you don't have to worry about the development of the growth plates, which will then, if you can explain a little bit more in depth. So if anybody doesn't know what a growth plate is, what is it? how does it help the dog develop? Yeah, so growth plates are located in all of the joints, essentially, in the body. And um, when an animal is young, like if you were to an x-ray a young animal, um, and when I say young, I mean... I consider that to be, depending on the breed, but basically the growth plates are going to be closed usually at about 10 months of age. Some of the giant breed dogs like Mastiffs, you're looking at more like 18 months of age. Mm -hmm. But they're basically these spaces that as the dog grows kind of tighten up. They look very loose when the animal is young. And they ultimately kind of affect um, the length of the limbs and things like that. So like I've seen dogs that have gotten growth plate injuries, like traumatic injuries. um, And then like that leg will be shorter than the other one because it's it's just not an Mm -hmm. ideal place to injure um because it can affect that um so that specifically is is what i'm referring to so there shouldn't Mm -hmm. be any issues as far as those because people they still get that question a lot um that there was uh some misinformation about there either that or it might have been a study that was then disproven um but so at least that is not a concern okay so it so uh span neutering your so what about what about the early age fixing. So we're talking about the dogs that are fixed at a very, very early age. Like 
very early. Um, when when let's say a a clinic, not not necessarily a veterinarian clinic, but um, a shelter or an organization that rescues dogs and they get puppies, they like to fix dogs very young. Um, so is there what, again going back to, I guess to the original question is this what ideally would be like a safe bet for people to get their dog fixed that they can have the the best of both worlds and have their cake and eat it too if you will so you get so there's no real evidence s- stating that the 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 bone growth is changed or altered if you fix your dog before they fully mature correct correct okay correct. so what would be the benefit if you did wait and what would be the benefit if you, or, or the the lack of benefits, I guess, if you will, if you mm-hmm. fix them too early? What are you looking at? Yeah, I think it kind of depends on your on your definition of too early. I mean, I I don't really agree with like the eight weeks of age. Although I will say I understand why rescue groups and humane societies do that because a big priority is making sure that they are not contributing to the um, unwanted pets or uncared for pet population. So I do understand. And I, in light of that, especially with cats them for that. Exactly. Um, So, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, that's, it's a really good question. I mean, I think that, if you wait until six months of age, I, it's a lot safer for that ah, pet from an anesthetic right. perspective as far as their size. Um, and the other benefit to that, it kind of depends on the breed. And toy breeds tend to be more prone to this. But hmm. some breeds retain their baby teeth. So what that means is when the adult dentition comes in, the baby teeth don't necessarily come out. And it's usually the canine teeth, the upper canine teeth, but it can be any of them. Um, Much more common in small breed dogs. Um, So so they just don't, they don't develop, they don't pop out. Is that what you mean? um, Well, the adult teeth will come in, but the baby teeth will still be in. The adult teeth don't force the baby teeth out. So do you kind of like a double decker or something? Exactly. Yeah. It kind of looks like shark teeth (laughs) depending on where it is. Right. Um, So another, another argument for that six months as well, the adult dentition should be in by then. So if we still have baby teeth at that point, we know they're not going to come out on their own. We're going under anesthesia anyway. We can just take out the baby teeth at that time. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if you do, if you do, so the ideal time would be like not ideal because I know you can't say for sure because there's so much dependency or um, dependent variance as I understand that. So it would be safe to say that if you wait six months, your male is not going to be fully matured. But if you got your male fixed at that age, it's not going to have significant um, problematic issues down the road. Is that fair? And same thing with females. Yes, I will say we, I'll, I'll word it, we currently don't have any evidence to support that that's not true. So yes, that, that currently is a fair assessment. Okay. Now, let's switch gears and go to the other side. If you did wait, like I can talk about behavior in a minute, but because I know that there's significant differences if you keep a dog intact, whether it's male or female with behavior. But say you didn't, say you did wait until two, I've heard, and correct me if I'm wrong, I've heard basically the the idea of, well, clinics like to fix dogs early because it's easier for the surgery. And then I've also heard that if they're older, it's harder to do the surgery for the person who's who's doing the surgery. So if you waited until the first heat, second heat, whatever, two or three years old, are they gonna? Is there is there is there any proven, I guess, uh, advantages to the dog if you wait until they're fully mature? 
That is a good question. Um, or is it breed far, specific? Yeah. Um, I'm sorry. It's, I'm sorry. One of my pets was doing something that I had to go <laughs> figure out what it was. Could you repeat that? I'm sorry. I'm no, that's totally fine. I, you kind of already answered it, but I want to just clarify, like, because you said it's it's kind of breed specific on oh, if you okay. wait. Yeah. As far as as far as the, the yeah, if you wait level of the procedure. Yeah. 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 So I, I wouldn't say okay. So it, technically, what you said is true. But I would say the argument more, um, you know, if people are, are, are going to refer to that instead of referring to like the difficulty level, the fact of the matter is it's riskier. It's riskier mm. for the pet, um, for a spay, not necessarily a neuter, but for a spay. The reason for that is, well, twofold. So even in a dog that is lean, the body likes to deposit fat around the reproductive organs to protect them. And mm -hmm. so even in a lean female, let's say she's two years old, um, when you get in to spay her in a spay, um, typically you're removing both the ovaries as well as the uterus. And so there is a, a large blood supply to the uterus that, or to the, well, to both, but mostly to the ovaries, that blood supply increases over time. So you're dealing with the bigger blood supply. The other thing that you're dealing with is, a lot of fat around that blood supply. So uh, more ligatures, it's it's a more time intensive procedure. Essentially the risk of hemorrhage is higher. Um, so that's, that's basically where that's coming from. The other thing is there's a ligament that you need to um, essentially disarticulate. It's called um, the suspensory ligament in order to exteriorize the ovary enough to ligate that blood supply and that that ligament unless they have had puppies mm -hmm. um also it gets tougher over time it is it's physically harder to tear where that translates to risk is that is you're tearing something that you can't really see that there's a lot of fat around it and it's right next to a blood supply so, so difficult cool. yes but the the take home the important thing about that is that translate to risk for the dog yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, so it's it's potentially dangerous to fix a dog that's fully matured and has gone through a heat or two. Um and and that though no, that makes sense. And and from from my understanding too just because I know that there's so many variances again with the size of the dog, what the dog's doing, so on and so forth. Um I know that there's probably certain diseases and cancers and things that a dog can get if they are fixed and not I mean have you have you have you seen any or have you heard of any in your in your field of dogs uh, gaining more potential risks of diseases and cancers if you wait versus or if you fix them earlier have you heard anything of that the only thing that across the board is consistent regardless of breed is the correlation to um, breast cancer in females um, so the, the longer they're intact, statistically, the more likely mm -hmm. they are to have that issue because those um, types of tumors are progesterone responsive and their progesterone is higher when they go through heat. So right. that's the only kind of across the board, regardless of breed risk. Okay. No, that makes, that makes, that makes sense. And I know that you touched base on that before. So sorry if I'm uh, no, that's okay. getting, getting the same information out of you. So one other thing that I, that I heard, which makes sense to me and I, and I, that's why I wanted to ask you, which is why I really appreciate you uh, coming on is so the, the rate of infectious diseases would be higher with dogs who are fixed because it, just like with humans, if like small, ch like small children and elderly get, because they don't have the best immune system because it's not, um, 
it's not what it used to be and or it's not developed yet, um, the rate of infectious diseases are are more likely in dogs who were fixed early because they don't have the opportunity to fully mature and develop. Is there anything you can touch base on that or no? So I am going to be honest and say that I have never read a study that supports that. Okay. Not to say that it's not out there. I might not have just read it, but that is not something that I'm familiar with. Okay. Yeah. Cause that, that was one thing that I've heard over the years and it, it, it kind of makes sense if you say it out loud where it's like, if you take away their opportunity to fully mature as an animal, it'll also take away their, their opportunity to develop certain things to help protect them just like it would with humans, which, you know, like I said, it's that, that's why I like having the conversation to see if you have any information or not on it, but that's okay. Um, cool. So all in all, uh, and I know that, uh, your, this is your day off, and I appreciate you hopping on here and talking about this stuff. Hey, with that's me. okay. I'm multitasking. I'm actually we're putting the house on the market next weekend, so I'm I'm scrubbing cabinets as we talk. <laughs> <laughs> that's what that's what entitles in your on your day off is to continue to work and and yes. talk to me about animals. So I, I appreciate it. So um, touching base on everything, is there anything else? Like again, this is uh, people who listen. There's thousands of people who listen to this, and there's dog trainers, there's professionals, there's some people who don't even have dogs. Is there any final advice? for people that, um, you know, are dealing with two things is the anxiety portion of being in your, your point of view from, from being like a more, um, uh, the, the, the veterinarian side. And then also with spay and neutering to, to just say as a guideline, and again, nobody's going to quote you and say, Oh, Dr. Rice said this, this is more of just <laughs> like, this is more of just very, out there advice to say, hey, this is what I would suggest for people, and this is this is just for my listeners, for just some free advice for you, because I know that your time is is valuable, and I appreciate it. But is there any other advice that you can touch on with the anxiety and or the the spay and neuter of, of their dog? I don't think so. Just aside from kind of a blanket statement about, um, you know, everybody's had different experience with various vets and and people. Right obviously have preferences for one over another, but just generally speaking, I think there's a lot of good information out there, including online, but I would just encourage people to always consult um, with a veterinarian um, before making a major decision about any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, That's what they're there for, you know, or what, that's what we're here for. Um, You know, we want what's, what's best for you and what's best for, for your dog or your pets and your household. So certainly um, don't hesitate to, to ask us those questions. I know that like at 10 o'clock in the night when you're, you know, wondering about something, it's more probably the internet at that time, but (laughs) yeah, which is a bad um, thing to do. You can always jot those, those questions down and and definitely, um, you know, rely on us for that information. So yeah, no, it's a, it's a good point. And then also to, um, just making sure that, um, I think as, as, as clients of, or dog owners in general, just making sure that you also, you know, after having this conversation with you, and I know that we had it before of just realizing that what your job is to do is, is, is really science and medicine based to make sure that your animal is safe and healthy. And you guys have all the technology and experience and working with those, those types of things. But there are certain limitations as far as behavior goes and oh, absolutely. You know, diagnosing dogs with, with, you know, and, and owners just coming in and saying like, Hey, you know, my dogs on all this trazodone, but they also are stuck in a crate all day. What do you think? You know, so there's certain limitations to that. And then is there any other final, um, notes or send offs about, uh, spay and neutering your dogs? Or do you feel like you, you covered everything that you, uh, felt comfortable with? 
That's a good question. I, I feel like I went on ad nauseum about females. Do you want me to talk about health-related issues with, with intact males versus, males versus not? Or Yeah, I mean, and the other thing that I wanted to... to to talk to talk to you about too is just like the temperament and the behavioral possible changes with 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 males specifically because um, my side note um, with all of the and again like all of the data that I've collected over the time um, over the last eleven years of working with dogs every single day um, has been I have seen a considerable difference in behavior with intact males not only in training of behavioral changes of like, hey, my dog's behavior is different, but also just in a pack mentality where in our daycare, it's huge. I mean, we'll get a puppy in. And here's, here's one thing that I'll, that I'll say that really is, is kind of discouraging to dog owners, and it shouldn't be, is say a puppy came into daycare, four months old, has all their shots, just wants to play with the dog, mom and dad are busy, great, grand. Go into the back room, hang out with all the other dogs and play. But what happens is, is if, if they keep their dog intact and that's their decision to do so, which is, I respect, um, and then all of a sudden the dog hits nine months, 10 months, depending on the breed, and they start to mature, their behavior changes. And then they start maybe guarding certain people and dogs and they start acting differently. And what happens is, is we tell people, hey, listen, you know, your dog is going through a, ma- a maturity phase and they're not the same they're not the same dog you got when they were eight weeks. They're starting to mature. Just like kids, like we don't do the same things that we wanted to do when we were kids. We matured and we outgrew that. And I think just behaviorally speaking, to, to my audience uh, that's listening, behaviorally speaking, I can tell you that there is a significant difference and change in, in especially males' behavior of becoming territorial, um, resource guarding, um, fighting uh, male on male is a big, big thing. I can almost tell you that every single time there is a intact, mature male around another intact, mature male, I've never seen it be friendly. It's always been a conflict because of their, again, their primalistic, hey, I'm, I'm the big man. No, I'm the big man. And then you get that conflict. And I've even studied with wolves um, quite a bit uh, compared to uh, a lot of the other studies that I've done with just canines. And I can see that um, also playing a role in just hierarchy and stuff. So I guess, yeah, I would love your, your, your take and your information on keeping males intact and what you've seen on a more um, body changes and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that you've touched on a lot of the good behavioral stuff. Absolutely. That I think that is a much more pronounced difference behavioral wise when you when you're talking about an intact male versus a female. And um, another thing, too, that depending on um, what else your household looks like as far as other people and Mm -hmm. especially other animals, the other thing that you might deal with at some point with a an intact male is marking of territory in Mm -hmm. places that you maybe don't want it to like in your house. Um, so that's just something to keep in mind as well. And what I mean by that is peeing on your things. Um, so, um, so yeah, I mean, those are all things that you kind of have to keep in mind. Um, so we think there's, there's more of a behavioral consideration less from a health perspective. Um, less than, less than females. Correct. Yeah. So we don't, I mean, intact males actually are far less likely to get prostate cancer, which that's not like one of the like 
most common types of cancer, but it's not rare either. Um, and the, t- the testosterone actually seems to have a protective effect. So you're, you're less likely to get that. Mm-hmm. Um, you can get prostatitis, which is just an inflammation of the prostate gland usually presents as a semen quality issue. But of course, if the dog's not being used for breeding, you would never know that. Um, if it gets severe, they can seem like they have a urinary tract infection, bloody urine, smelly urine, mm-hmm. inappropriate urination, not related to territory markings. So those are really kind of the considerations from a health perspective. Um, but yeah, it's definitely, definitely more considerations um, from a behavior standpoint. Yeah. And I think, yeah, and exactly. And just to clarify, and like what I was talking about earlier, if you talk about like, yes, with the animals that we're talking about, the dogs that we're talking about are obviously domesticated. So it's a little different. It's not saying like, Hey, if we had uh, an intact wolf versus, you know, or an intact coyote or an intact fox or, or some sort of other animal similar with, with, I guess foxes really aren't pack mentality animals. I don't think, but coyotes and wolves are, um, it, it becomes a little bit more primalistic. And, and like I said before, when, when you raise an intact male and they become fully mature, they also, without you understanding or knowing, they take on responsibilities mentally. They say, okay, I'm fully mature. Um, and then going back to your marking situations, a lot of people will be confused on why the dog, like my intact male will pee on almost every tree because their territory doesn't run out when they walk out of the house. Like we say, okay, we're off our property. Well, that's you as a human, but a dog's territory could be the entire neighborhood. So sometimes we, we've had different case studies with, with intact males having severe leash reactivity issues, but only in their neighborhood. And so we've, we've gone back to the drawing board to say, wait a minute, this makes sense because if you're walking around your neighborhood Canines can have a, a pretty big space that they would consider theirs because of their regular visits to the areas, if you will, meaning walking them on the same route every day and they say, okay, this is mine, this is mine, this is mine. And then they can also uh, create over time uh, leash reactivity because of that in their neighborhood, which becomes severe because the male is saying like, Hey, there's another dog. I got to go check it out. And then they build frustration and all these different behaviorals happen. But anyway, um, yeah, no, I think, I think that this is good. And like I said, um, I, I appreciate you hopping on. Do you have anything else you want to add? I don't think so. No. Okay, cool. Well, I wish I could promote you in some way, like if you had a book or something, but, uh, if anybody's in, <laughs> maybe someday. Yeah. If anybody's in Minnesota area. So, um, anyway, so I appreciate you hopping on, Rana. Um, it was nice to chat with you again. And then in the future, maybe we can do this again and switch up the subject and talk about something else. But that's, that's all I have. I appreciate you hopping on. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And thanks for, for doing what you're doing about getting, information about there about behavior and and helping us all become um better dog owners it's much appreciated cool well thank you very much i appreciate that all right well you enjoy getting your house ready to sell i wish you the best of luck it's really fun and i'll (laughs) I'll talk to you next time okay all right sounds good all right bye all right, guys, thank you so much for listening. I truly do appreciate it. That was that was great. I can I, I know that I'm going to spend more time with Rihanna here on the podcast and talk about other things because um, she's just very knowledgeable. And, and I again, Rihanna, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I know that it was your day off, and I appreciate it because I know that my listeners are going to gain some information, valuable, valuable information. So thank you again, Rihanna, for hopping on here. And again, this, this podcast was brought to you by my friends over at Dogtra. 
Um, they are my go-to remote collar training product. You can visit them at dogtra.com. And again, guys, I'm going to be in Cleveland, Ohio, and that's going to be in May 16th and 17th. We have working spots and audit spots still available. Please, if you're, again, I don't want to say please, but please, if you're really thinking about coming for a working spot, I think we only have three left as of today. So they're, they're probably going to run out. So if you guys haven't yet, you can get tickets at America's Canine, wow, America's Canine slash calendar. And I hope to hang out with you guys and meet you guys. It's going to be the one of the only things in the middle of the country we're going to do this year, unfortunately, because my schedule got crazy. But anyway, thank you guys so much for listening. If you haven't yet, don't forget, screenshot this, share it on your Instagram. I will repost it. I appreciate seeing everybody from all over the country listening or all over the world listening to the podcast. And I hope you guys enjoyed it. And we're going to talk to you next week. Peace. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.